Good morning, and welcome to the Foreign Policy blog for John's newsletter, where we make sense of the beguiling new world we live in. And today, this is filed under the Patrick Henry podcast, where we put the establishment's feet to the fire, looking at the appalling job they have done, are doing, and sadly will do if we Jeffersonians don't hold them to account in a Republican way. And I mean that classically. One of the big problems in political risk analyst is a fancy term called elite capture. And what this means is that the people who are successful at what I do tend to be captured by the very elite that they're studying. As you become more famous and as you become richer and as you become go to the same cocktail parties as the elite that you study, you become part of the elite that you study, lose your, creative fa- your critical faculties, lose your creativity, and end up becoming merely another appendage of the bloated establishment that you were set to study. One of the things I really like about a competitor of mine, George Friedman, who runs Geopolitical Futures, is that he famously says, we don't go to cocktail parties, meaning they like the distance they have, that Friedman's headquarters is in the great city of Austin, Texas, which is a lot more fun to live in than Washington, having lived in Washington, as you all know, for quite a while. And Friedman uses this geographic distance to also keep personal distance, which keeps analytical distance, which is why Friedman's call record is one of the best in the business. It's because he studies elites. He isn't part of elites. And that is a huge factor. Contrast this with the people who lauded Angela Merkel, who until about a year ago, in fact, exactly a year ago, which is why I look at the wreck of her historical reputation today, was seen as the savior of the West. The Economist, which used to be an incredibly well-written paper, but is now just an establishment rag, went on and on about contrasting her with Donald Trump, how she was the last bastion saving the West having been in power for 16 years in her far-sighted way, saving the Western rules-based, norms-based order. All the while they said this, crucially, and this is what I had my beady eye on, they never, ever said what she had done positively. And I wrote long ago, and I've been on to this for a while with my beady eye, if you can't explain historically and I am a historian, as you know, and I look at political risk through a historical lens, if you can't explain concrete, empirical, historical accomplishments that we can then argue about and merely say how much you like the person, I get very suspicious very quickly, as I did of The Economist, which is now the rag of an establishment it used to study and study very well. Now I don't read it unless I want to know anthropologically what the establishment is thinking. Likewise, Ian Bremmer, who really founded the modern uh, political risk movement, is a much better businessman than he is an analyst always, said that Angela Merkel was about the best thing since sliced bread and that she was holding the West together. And one of the reasons that Bremmer analytically is wrong in Eurasia, his group is wrong about so much, is they spend all their time now as part of the establishment very successful, they like going to the cocktail parties, and have become part of the thing that they were supposed to study. Hence his missing out on the rise of Trump and populism, because the establishment that he hangs out with didn't see that coming. Hence his agreement about American interventions being a good thing. Well, he hangs out with the fellows that I am a member of in the Council on Foreign Relations. All of them are in favor 
of interventions almost everywhere, unlike most of the rest of Americans. But Bremer doesn't look at the rest of Americans. He hangs out with the council guys. And this is a terrible problem. It's why he missed Trump, missed Iraq, missed Brexit, missed Afghanistan, and shouldn't be hired by anybody who cares about a call record. If you become part of the thing you're studying, you're bound to make mistakes. Likewise, Chatham House, which in essence is the Council on Foreign Relations of Britain, wrong and surprised by almost everything because it's part of an establishment that it was there to study. I've been sort of lucky because of my biography that I've been both a member of the establishment and yet at a distance from it. And I think this has helped my analytical record immeasurably, similarly to the more proposive actions of George Friedman. Because I live in Europe, because I live in Milan, but not Brussels or London, uh, which is a wonderful city, by the way, and I adore living in Italy, but because I live in a place away from the political centers of power, Brussels, Berlin, though I've lived there, Washington, though I've lived there, but I don't anymore. I'm a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, but I'm not of the Council on Foreign Relations. And that gives you perspective. That lets you analyze people as they are warts and all, and not just do what you heard at the latest cocktail party. Elite capture is killing the industry, but on the other hand, those who are not burdened by elite capture can actually look at things as they are warts and all. And Merkel is one of the great examples because Bremer, The Economist, and uh, Chatham House have all gotten this wrong. She has not been a great bastion of Western success. Rather, now a year on, historically looking at her record, she's Stanley Baldwin, um, or at best Neville Chamberlain, who permitted an awful lot of things to happen while she dithered and did nothing. So let's, let me back up that statement. If you evaluate Merkel's 16 years in office now, just a year on from when everyone said how great she was, a new poll reveals that 80% of German voters uh, said that, that her times had been good. So as she left office just a year ago, 80% of Germans agreed with Bremer and the conventional wisdom that she had done a good job. But now if you look back upon the shibboleths the the things that she thought that were real and that were, were fundamental to the era and that were truisms of her time, they now look rather ridiculous in retrospect after the Russian invasion of Ukraine has been a bolt of lightning for us to see the political risk field as it actually is. One of the things that Mericalism stood for was the limitless power of dialogue, that if you just talk to someone, this is a Wilsonian and particularly a European Union uh, conceit that if you just bore someone to death, it's Rousseau used to think this, one of the worst philosophers in history who gave us Robespierre directly and authoritarianism indirectly, the idea that it, of the general will, that if enough people talk long enough, they will all reach the same conclusion. And of course, this is insane. It's simply not true. And in fact, from 25 years of talking to Europeans, I'm more convinced today than when I started that Wilsonians don't know what they're talking about, and the historical record would bear me out on that point. The limitless potential of dialogue, Merkel believed in. If we could just talk to Putin long enough, he'll give back the territory he took in Donetsk and Crimea. And of course, this is a fairy tale that means you don't have to do policy. You merely talk about dialogue as though if talking to someone 
does away with their national interests, which may be very different from yours, and no amount of talking will make them any more similar. Talking and negotiations ratify outcomes. They don't cause outcomes. Diplomacy is not an action verb. It's what you do after you've reached facts on the ground through realism. The second of Miracleism's uh, nonsensical shibboleths was the civilizing effect of trade ties. And here the Americans at the time under both George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, all the same, believed that if you just trade with someone enough, every man is a conservative after dinner. We've talked about this stuff before in the, in the blog, that the idea, and this worked on China, that if we just make every man a conservative after din dinner, as Emerson said, China will become a status quo power. And on energy policy, this was Germany's defense of its energy policy, that it's good that we're trading with Putin because over time this will civilize him, make him a status quo power, not make him seek revisionist outcomes uh, on his border. And of course, historically, empirically, this has been proven to be untrue, to put it mildly. Third, there is the innate pacifism that she did. She almost never mentioned military means. She's never come close to hitting Merkel, the NATO's 2% rule and in fact talked her way around this all the time and this also caught my bdi 16 years ago that they would change the subject the germans whenever actual military spending was brought up because they're pacifists and don't believe it matters there would never be war again i heard by many in the miracle government on the european continent wrong 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 but it gave them an excuse to do what they wanted to do which was nothing just like the trade aspects gave them an excuse not to think about security of supply. And again, they thought there'd be no all-out land war in Europe. I was told many times it was insane. The Americans were alarmist that, that somehow the Germans thought they could handle the Russians from their history. I have no idea what that meant, understanding what Stalingrad was, but the idea that there would never be a land war and that people who thought in military or strategic terms were antiquated. And in fact, the day before the invasion, I was told by a frenemy of mine, as I've said on this before on our blog, how silly I was and that I overrated military means. Obviously, in retrospect, all these Wilsonians underrated military means. Fifth, Merkel thought that Putin was a status quo partner, that for all that he was difficult and for all that Russia fit awkwardly into the European community of nations, it did fit, and that Putin was not a revolutionary power, but a status quo power. She also has made this, this mistake about China, that it somehow accepted the international order. In essence, as a critic of Merkel in her own party, Mr. Rotkin has said, Germany, over the Merkel years, outsourced its trade policy to China, outsourced its energy policy to Russia, and outsourced its security policy to the United States. In all these cases, and this is the sixth point, Germany under Merkel had no agency. They merely commented on a series of values that they valued rather than doing anything to uphold those values. People confused her not doing anything with somehow being steady and stable and a force. And doing nothing, as Stanley Baldwin did, as Britain in the 1930s under the, the thrall of appeasement fell further and further behind the Germans in terms of air power, despite the warnings of Churchill, doing nothing is not the same as being a steadying influence. At best, Merkel was about tactics. There was no overall strategy except to get through the morning. Utter pragmatism, how do we get through the day, was her strategy. Now even members of the CDU, which is now run by her former arch rival Friedrich Merz, quite able guy, even they're reversing Merkel policy. For instance, 
The CDU now calls for Germany's three remaining nuclear plants to be kept open um, and are looking at fracking as an option. And the reason for this is the seventh point against Merkel, the idea that her energy policy worked. It, it ignored, obviously, security of supply. It put all the energy eggs in the Russian basket. And it turns out that globalization was era was wrong. It, it isn't about economic rationality. It's about economic rationality plus political risk. It does, Mayor, does matter where your computer chips come from. It matters where your pharmaceuticals come from. It matters where your rare earths come from. It matters where you get your masks. It matters again, where you get computer chips and critically energy. And Merkel missed all of that. Her energy policy is in essence for all these many philosophical errors. Her policy Achilles heel is the energy policy without a doubt at all. Um, but it wasn't just Russia. That's too easy. Merkel missed out perhaps even more on China, which is in the long run more important as the other great superpower in our new era, along with the United States. Um, it was seen, China became, over Merkel's time, Berlin's largest trading partner um, during the Merkel years. And in fact, right now, one in every five cars sold in China is a Volkswagen. It's hard to see how if there's a huge crisis with China, with the United States, which there could well be, Germany coming to the defense of the United States, but rather this trade policy being tied to China and the energy policy being tied to Russia mean that Germany heads toward neutralism. It's the logical point. If you put your commercial and energy policy first, you will get neutralism. And indeed, under Merkel, Germany went from a really pro-Western position before her era into the neutralism that has plagued both Germany and Europe since. Um, during the twilight of the Trump era, a poll in Germany found that 36% of Germans thought it was more important to have good relations with China, and only 37% thought it was good to have better, better relations with the United States. I mean, this is the definition of neutralism. The German people loved Merkel, and she loved them. Who followed which policy is hard to say. The causation here is hard to, to unravel. Certainly, though, they went in the same direction toward a commercial neutralism that has plagued EU policy throughout the Merkel years and is now coming back to bite them. But at the end of the Merkel era, 37% of Germans thought that good ties with the U.S. were important, were the, of the most importance, 36 with China, absolutely even. And this is a sign of the corrosion of Germany, ignoring its history and certainly not being grateful for support in the Cold War or the rebuilding of the country. It had moved to a resolutely neutral position because of its commercial mercantilism. They had entirely ignored in Germany the notion of security of supply, which means in essence political risk. Where do things come from? In only valuing macroeconomics and hyper-rationality, which was the one policy driver of the globalized era, Merkel and those who championed globalization forgot that there were other drivers as well. Military means, ideology, values, culture, society, all these other things mattered, and it just became one thing. At the moment, to show you how in hoc the Germans are, 200 billion euro of German investment is in China and could be held hostage in the event of some sort of seismic political dispute with the West. And this makes it virtually impossible for, for instance, and just to make it a sectoral thing that matters to Germans, in their desire to move toward 
um, some sort of green society. And this Germans do care about when you talk when you want to talk to the Germans about NATO or about military spending. Invariably, they change the subject and talk about global warming and as though the two were related. Uh, it was a way, again, to change the subject. But if you're going to move to solar and wind technology, this is almost entirely an industry dominated by China. And Germany can't make this transition. It's impossible without Chinese components. And this is an example of security of supply mattering and not just globalization, as Merkel heedlessly led Germany, as Stanley Baldwin did for the British in the 1930s, off a geostrategic cliff by, in essence, never doing geostrategy. The point of globalization was that political risk and geostrategy matter, but only at the edges, not really. Because in the end, the United States and China will solve their differences because they're simply making too much money. Or Russia will not rip up the borders of its hinterlands and, about, and its frontiers because it's simply doing too well out of security ties over energy policy to Europe. And so it won't you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater. And this has proven to be nonsense. And the reason for this mistake is that there is simply other motivations in the world besides economics. Economics remains a main driver, but under globalization and Merkelism, it had been the only driver. So looking at the Merkel era, only a year away from when it ended, you see the world very differently. And I've left a final point for the end. The point of this is that a year ago, Merkel had what she thought was her crowning achievement. She had managed to convince the eager to please, not very geostrategic thinking Biden administration, desperate for better relations with Europe and the West because they'd been reading The Economist, Ian Bremmer, and Chatham House for four years and had said, all of them, Wilsonians, Trump has caused eruption with the Western alliance, missing that although Trump was bombastic and often would make things worse, he simply wasn't wrong when he said that it's time Germany paid their way. That Germany, as a rich country, one of the richest in the world, could manage 2% of spending rather than the United States defending the Germans from Russians while Germany cut energy deals with the Russians. That was a Kafka novel that wasn't sustainable, and Trump was entirely right about that, getting no credit for the policy, and as always with these groups, Bremer, Chatham House, The Economist, style taking the place of substance, they said we have to be nice to the Germans. And the problem with being nice is that it moved into substance. Let's give way on Nord Stream 2. And a sign of the lunacy of the thinking of Merkel that now just a year on looks absolutely crazy is that she was for Nord Stream 2. Let's double down on our energy dependence <coughs> to Russia. Let's do more. Let's be two-thirds in hock to natural gas supplies with Russia. And the Biden administration, so eager to please having read The Economist, Chatham House, and Bremer, say, okay, we'll go along with it. What lunacy on the elite's part. It ought to be held with its feet to the fire over this. It's like going to your drug dealer and saying, can I have more? The drug dealer, being Putin in this case, will always say, of course you can have more. Of course we want you to be more enthralled to us. And so Nord Stream 2 went along shamefully with former Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder, Putin's puppy, leading the way, bought and paid for by the Kremlin, leading the way. The Americans wave it through, and Merkel has what she thinks is her crowning achievement, energy supply guaranteed by the Russians forever.
Well, let's look at that just a year on from when she did it. It now looks like an act of suicidal, psychotic self-harm. And we should hold her feet to the fire. Because having walked through the raindrops from 16 years, much as Stanley Baldwin did in the 1930s, let's remember that by when Churchill came to power in World War II, little boys were throwing rocks at Stanley Baldwin, and Churchill had to go and send a security detail to defend him because the little boys had it right. Although not there for the catastrophe, Baldwin had helped perpetuate it and cause it and left Britain woefully unprepared for what was to come. And Merkel is the Stanley Baldwin of Germany. She has left them utterly unprepared for the real world, the new era that we're living in, by all these many philosophical mistakes. And the elite that agreed with her, the Bremers of the world, the Chatham Houses of the world, the economists of the world, really do need to explain how they got so much so wrong so often. Thanks very much. I hope you enjoyed this. I enjoyed the wreck of the Angela Merkel with you, looking at how just a year on from her leaving, history paints a very different picture of her, very much more in line with my suspicions of her than with an elite that was cheerleading for her, leaving their brains at the door. This is going to be the last. The podcast is going to take a break for the next week. That's all it is. Unlike um, some Europeans, I retain my puritanical American edge and will be back giving you weekly newspapers well into August. I'll be back for every day of August when I'm taking my first grown-up vacation in seven years, going with Sarah to the Bay of Naples for the rest of the week. So we will be off the grid, but I wanted to get this one out for you to enjoy, and I promise to be back at my desk Monday morning helping our community make sense of the beguiling new world that we live in. Have a great time. I know I will. It'll be very strange to relax, but I'm going to give it a try. See you next Monday.